This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time for Come and Talk It with your host, Michael Cargill, brought to you by Texas Law Shield. Over the last decade, Michael has championed and supported the rights of law-abiding Texans to own and use firearms. He is the owner of Central Texas Gunworks, a veteran of the United States Army, and has achieved national exposure in such prestigious media outlets such as Forbes Magazine, Fox Business News, CNN Money, AOL, BBC World News, Huffington Post, and the New York Times. Cargill vigorously defends lawful gun ownership in this country without regard to party politics. And now, here's Michael Cargill. Good afternoon, Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world. Let's play, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. All right, so today we have attorney Gordon Cooper from U.S. Law Shield on the phone. Gordon will chat with us about the NFA process and the National Firearms Act. And so let me tell you a little bit about the National Firearms Act of 1934, and it requires the registration. That's right. Some of your firearms that you purchase need to be registered with the federal government, and those are going to be your fully automatic firearms termed machine guns, uh, rifles and shotguns that have an overall length under 26 inches, rifles with a barrel under 16 inches, Shotguns with a barrel under 18 inches and firearm sound suppressors termed silencers. Now, the Gun Control Act of 1968, <clears throat> uh, it placed destructive devices, primarily explosives now, but also including firearms over 50 caliber other than most shotguns under the provisions of the NFA. In 1994, the Treasury Department placed revolving cylinder shotguns and one semi-automatic shotgun under the NFA list. The Gun Control Act of 1968 prohibited the importation of fully automatic firearms for private purposes, and a 1986 amendment to the act prohibited the domestic manufacture of fully automatics for private purposes. However, Short barrel rifles and shotguns have become increasingly popular for home defense and defensive skills based marksmanship training and competition and sound suppressors have become increasingly popular for marksmanship training and competitions and for hunting. Now, before I welcome Gordon to the show, let me go to my my co-host, Janai. Uh, Janai, uh, tell me, because, you know, a little bit about you know the history behind the NFA Act there. Yeah, I was reading earlier um, in 1934 when they passed it. It was in it was in part for tax revenue, but the other uh, issue at hand was um, there was a lot of gangster activity. So Congress, you know, the whole St. Valentine's Day massacre, which as I mentioned to you earlier, is one of my relatives. <laughs> and see, I think I called you Janae, and it's Janai. And see, I don't want you to get me. You know. Just go. You guys know I have. We have uh, mob ties here in the studio. So don't don't try anything because uh, my co-host, you know, she's related to the mob. So we will get you. Yes, my grandmother was Al Capone's cousin. 
So wow. Anyway, um, but so in response to all the gangster activity, um, Congress wanted to curtail the activity of of, of sales of those types of uh, guns, and so. Um, that's why they, they imposed that $200 fine, which, as we were talking about earlier, would be equivalent to $3,600 in today's dollars. Wow. And that's a lot. You know, you're yeah. talking $200 back in, you know, 1934. And so, man, that's a lot now, you know, speed forward to 2017. That's crazy. All right, so we're going to sort all this stuff out. And to help us sort this out, we're going to bring Gordon Cooper uh, with Texas and U.S. Law Shield. And Gordon started college at the University of Houston at 13 years old, where he attended undergrad and law school. That's right. He attended the University of Houston at 13 years old. Now, Gordon, he's real modest. He's not going to say he's a child prodigy or anything like that. But let me tell you, Gordon, is I, this guy is so smart. I, I just it's, it's insane. Uh, so he was the youngest graduate on record there at the University of Houston. And Gordon Cooper, I, I want to welcome you to come and talk, sir. How are you doing this weekend? Hey, thanks, Mike. I'm doing well. You know, I feel bad getting the Doogie Hauser set up, uh, but I appreciate it all the same. <laughs> That's okay. You know, hey, you got to give credit where credit is due. You know, it, it is what it is. All right, so Gordon, you know, help us sort all this stuff out. The National Firearms Act. Uh, people are going crazy right now. They want to get their hands on a machine gun. They want to get a, a silencer or a suppressor. Uh, they want to, you know, turn a rifle into um, an SBR. You know, so how do we go about doing this process? Sure. So there's, you know, you have to keep in mind there was a huge rule overhaul that happened, um, uh, went into effect last year. And to really understand the impact of what we have to do now, I think it's helpful to talk a little bit about what, you know, we used to have to do not so long ago. So the old rule, you know, the rule that's not in effect right now, but the olden rule was if you wanted to get one of these items, like let's say you wanted a suppressor so you could hear things 30 years down the road, right? So you want to get a suppressor. Um, you had one of basically two options. You could buy it as an individual, which entails paying a $200 tax to the government like you all talked about. Um, you got to fill out some forms. That part's not hard. you got to get fingerprinted and photographed. That's kind of a hassle if you're like me and you hate seeing your own picture, but otherwise manageable. <laughs> um, but the worst part of it was you had to get chief law enforcement officer signature. Um, they had to agree that you weren't going to use this item for unlawful purposes. Now, as you can imagine, that gave a lot of people pause mm. because, you know, imagine you're in that, that chief law enforcement officer's shoes, uh, do you really want to sign a piece of paper saying you don't think this person's going to do anything wrong with the item? Mm. Um, I mean, imagine you sign off on somebody getting a, a machine gun and then they go, you know, shoot up a mall or, or commit some other kind of atrocity. Especially well, since you're... a piece of paper out there with your name on it. And especially you know, since you that... You thought this person's fine. Right. And especially since that position, your position could be an elected position. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, if the fastest thing that's going to come up during your re-election... Uh, process is that piece of paper where you signed off for for this person to get that um and then other you know kind of limiting factors uh to get the signature other than that kind of liability aspect um a lot of chief law enforcement officers had their own political views you know they didn't think that civilians needed these sorts of weapons or some of them you know just leaned in one particular direction when it came to gun rights than than you would expect and the end result was that a lot of people were not able to get their 
forms signed off on by these chief law enforcement officers. It just wasn't happening. Right. Um, which is why there was a huge jump to the second way of purchasing, which was as a trust or a corporation. If you purchased as one of these entities, um, obviously you would have to form it, which, you know, other than the unpleasantness of dealing with an attorney, wasn't that bad. Um, you'd get your trust or corporation formed, and you would file as the trust or corporation. And the huge benefit was you didn't have to get that chief law enforcement officer signature. All you had to provide were the trust or article incorporation documents to the government. You still had to pay the $200 tax because... You know, if you can figure out a way not to have to pay tax to the government, please give me a call after this show and, and let me know. Um, <laughs> so you still had to pay the tax. But not having to get that signature was the difference between being able to move forward and just basically being denied right out of the gate. Um, and so that was the process for a very long time until last year. Now, before um, before you go to uh, what happened after you know the change on July 13 of 2016, before we talk about that, some people um, will walk into the shop and they'll ask me about the discount in, discounted price. Like, uh, is there a $100 fee that I can pay instead of $200 or a $50 fee for you know, certain so the transactions? Only time, yeah, the only time there's a difference in, in the tax you got to pay to the government uh, is if you're transferring what's called an AOW or any other weapon. Um, now, that sounds great. But AOW or any other weapon does not mean any other weapon that you think of. It's a very specific uh, list of types of weapons that range from uh, things that don't look like guns but are secretly guns, like umbrella guns, uh, knife guns, things of that nature, um, or items that were so you know out there as far as the ATF was concerned, they put them into this category. For example, uh, I believe the Marble Game Getter has a, a smooth bore on top and a rifled bore on bottom, and it was just kind of this weird animal, and so they put it into the AOW category. For whatever reason, the transfer of those types of items is only a $5 tax. Um, but that's only the transfer, right? If I make an AOW, it's still 200 bucks. Um, and likewise, there's no, you know, there's no other way out of the 200 bucks for the suppressors or short-barreled weapons or machine guns, et cetera, that that you can really tap into. Okay. And and if you guys have questions, I see a lot of people are typing things online. I can't tell if these are legitimate questions or not. If you have a legitimate question, definitely give us a call. Uh, our number is 512-643-5483. That's 512-643-5483. Uh, come and talk it. All right. So, so, Gordon, now, July 13 of 2016, we had a change. Yes, it was a massive change. Um, and we ended up with a rule that kind of borders almost on sensical, but they kind of, you know, veered away at the last second for fear of having, you know, common sense legislation. Um, the good news was that the chief law enforcement officer signature requirement went away for individuals. Um, it's totally gone. You don't have to get approval before you can send in your forms to the government anymore. What they require now is notification. All you have to do is let the chief law enforcement officer know that you're entering into this process. And as far as the, the process is concerned, you can check that box. You're done with that particular step. Um, now, the the bad news is that it's a little more tedious if you have a trust, because what you have to do now is also, even if you have a trust or a corporation, you still have to notify the chief law enforcement officer of your area. And that rings true not only for the settlor or the, the main person in charge of the trust, 
but for anyone else in the trust who can possess the item other than beneficiaries, unless they've specifically been given authorization to possess the item uh, before the end of the trust. So all co-trustees, successor trustees, all these sorts of folks now have to notify their chief law enforcement officer that they're entering into this process. On top of that, everyone in a trust uh, or a corporation, again, who's a so-called responsible person, anyone who can you know, uh, transfer the item, possess the item, things of that nature, not only do they have to notify their, their CLIO, they also have to submit photographs and fingerprints to the ATF so the ATF can run a background check on them. So there's a lot more kind of paperwork headache involved now, um, and I guess it was sort of a what's good for the individual is good for everybody sort of perspective. But it definitely beats out the the initial version of the rule, which was going to require chief law enforcement officer signature for everybody, you know, trust or otherwise. So I think it's it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of hassle, but it's not as bad as it could have been. Okay, and then what about the, you know, the, so the fee for the AOW is going to be still the same? Oh, yeah, all the fees are still the same. It's still the 200 bucks. They haven't, you know, thankfully they haven't adjusted for inflation or anything like that. Uh, it's still just the same amount that was set way back when. But the, the main change here uh, is entirely notifying the Clio instead of having to get signature if you're an individual. And now... Everyone in trust has to go through the, the rigmarole of getting your pretty picture taken and send it in to the ATF. Okay. Now, we're talking with Gordon Cooper. Gordon, Gordon Cooper is an attorney with Texas and U.S. Law Shield, and Gordon actually attended the University of Houston at 13 years old. And so Gordon is actually lining this all out for us, and we come back from the break. We're going to actually take it from the beginning. We're going to go from, you know, if you're purchasing that item, from maybe online somewhere, you know, what's the process it takes to get to the gun store that you're going to get it from and then to you uh, to pick that item up. So we're going to walk through that whole process, talk about the paperwork, all the different forms, the form threes, form fours. We're going to break that down for you. This is Michael Cargill and you are listening to Come and Talk It. This is Brittany Glaze and I get my global gun news from Michael Cargill on Come and Talk It. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now here's Michael Cargill. All right, so we're talking with Gordon Cooper. Gordon is with Texas and U.S. Law Shield. And Gordon is talking to us about the NFA process, the National Firearms Act uh, process, and how to get that done. How are you going to get that automatic? How do you possess or own a short barrel rifle? How do you get your hands on the suppressor? Uh, let me go to Janai first. Janai, we got some questions online here. Yeah, Tom has a question. What percentage or crime is being committed with Class 3 items? So, so Gordon, do you, you know any statistics at all? Um, you, know, you know, what's the, the likelihood of actually someone actually committing a crime with the NFA item? Any history behind that at all? Yeah, I don't have that uh, exact number offhand, but I can tell you just from my own, you know, personal uh, survey of recent, you know, mass shooting events and other, you know, violent crimes, these are not the items you're, I mean, the items you see take place in those kind of events are items that are easily obtained and items that you can, you know, 
really they're they're nothing special um, because at the end of the day, someone who wants to do something nasty is going to do something nasty, and they'll just find the easiest way to that end goal. Um, ultimately, though, you know these are definitely sort of niche items, and you're not going to see those pop up in as many crimes as you are more easily obtained firearms. So, no, I, in fact, just personally, I can't think of, you know, uh, five events that have involved any kind of NFA item offhand. Yeah, and, and Tom, basically, uh, the likelihood of someone actually going through this entire process, you're talking, you know, six months, seven months, eight months, however long it's going to be right now you know, with the new rules and everything. Someone going through that entire process, getting one of these items, uh, automatic, a machine gun, uh, getting a, a suppressor, getting a short barrel rifle, getting an AOW, and then going and committing a crime with it. Uh, that is just insane. <laughs> to even, so it's just, the likelihood of someone doing that and wasting that money is just crazy. What'd you say, uh, Gordon? I was saying that's a very patient criminal. <laughs> very, very <laughs> patient criminal. <laughs> okay, so uh, so Gordon, so let's let's talk about this. All right, so now I go online and I'm searching online and I'm looking for a I'm looking for a I don't want to say an AOW. I don't want to make it too complicated. We'll go simple. So we'll I'm, I'm looking for an, uh, a machine gun. Now I want to. What's the likelihood of me being able to turn one of my rifles into a machine gun? Is that possible? Yeah. So this is a great question, um, and I don't know if you if you primed me on machine guns <laughs> on purpose or by accident. But, no, I did. Um, machine guns definitely are one of the most common questions I get uh, because what happens? You know, let's say I want to go buy a machine gun. I go online, and holy smokes, these things cost sixteen thousand dollars or some mad amount. Um, and so I want to make my own machine gun because, you know, I've got a rifle and it's relatively cheap to, to do it on my own. So I should be able to do that, right? right. Unfortunately, the answer is wrong, dead wrong, um, federal felony level wrong. So there's a law in place that prohibits the purchase of any machine guns or the registration of any machine guns made or manufactured after 1986. So if... You make a machine gun today from, you know, you grab your rifle and file some things down or you're a, a gunsmith and you go about it, you know, and make it, um, that's very, very bad. Mm. Uh, we talked to an NFA agent once because someone had accidentally run afoul of this law. And they said, hey, what do you want me to do with it? And they said, well, you got three options. Option number one is destroy it immediately. <laughs> Option number two is bring it to us and we'll destroy it for you. Um, and I'm sure they would gladly arrest him on spot. Right. And option three was bury it in the ground and hope we never find it. Um, <laughs> so that is the level of, of scrutiny you're under for these sorts of things. So you mean um, to tell me that if you know my great-grandfather, you know, I, I'm going through his items and I come across an NFA item that has not been registered, it's not in the system, you're telling me that there's no way I can make that legal at all? That is 100% correct. Um, there was an amnesty period, um, I believe back in the 80s, but there has not been one since, and you know I don't see one happening on the on the horizon either. There's been no announced amnesty periods, um, and so we've seen that happen all the time too, where people have their grandfather's uh, you know World War shotgun, or you know one guy didn't realize it, he had a a paperweight on his desk that he thought was a fake grenade, but turned out to be a real Civil War grenade. Um, so mm. he was. Very, very excited to find that information out. But again, the ATF is very, very stringent on these rules. They'll tell you if you want to keep it just for sentimental reasons, fill it with lead and let it harden to where the gun could ever be fixed. Um, but otherwise, yeah, you're committing a federal felony. 
Wow. Okay, now, so I'm going to have to go online and purchase this machine gun then. All right, so I want to go online and do my Google search there, and I, I find a dealer that actually has the they, – they have this machine gun that I've been eyeing for a while. So their dealer located in a totally different state, so I'm going to have to have them ship it to me. All right, so I can just – just like any other transfer, I can just contact that dealer, pay for that item right now, and just have them ship it to me, right, right away? Well, so, again, you're I, – I know you're doing this on purpose. Um, <laughs> No, there's there's a few more steps that have to happen. So we've still got the basic, you know, other than the NFA process of going, you know, filing forms, blah blah blah. Um, it's still treated a lot like a a firearm in that you have to pass a forty four seventy three, even for a suppressor, which is strange to me, because unless you're going to hit someone in the head with it, it's not really a weapon, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But you know, it is what it is. So again, you'll have to get it transferred to an FFL in your state. Um, and that, you know, is the person you can pick it up from. But that is another thing. You know, Gun Trader is a very popular website, and a lot of people do a very good job of finding exactly what they want on there. But then they mess up in the purchasing process. Mm. And so you have to be extremely careful to make sure, you know, both for buyer and seller, because both people can get in trouble, um, that you're not becoming an illegal importer uh, or dealer or trafficker of firearms in the process. Okay, so uh, so we're going to contact that dealer, going to pay for it, and then that dealer on the other end, they're going to fill out a Form 3, and they're going to Form 3 that to my gun store uh, or the gun store that I want to pick it up from. So they're going to you know Form 3 it, and once that gets approved, which probably takes about 30 days, maybe a little longer depending on you know what's going on, maybe 45 days, 30 days, that gets Form 3, and then once they receive their approval, it gets approved to transfer it from one gun store to the other. Then once that arrives at my gun store that I'm going to pick it up, then that gun store, I can then start the process of doing the Form 4. Um, I can get up, get the Form 4 filled out and do my fingerprints and get my trust. Now, I ha- as of the July 13 rule, I have to get the trust, right? So everyone's we, – we absolutely have to get the trust. There's no way around that trust at all. No, no, not true. Um, you can definitely – so you've still got – you can purchase it as an individual. You can purchase it as a trust, or you can purchase it as a corporation. All right, so um, let's so say – So it's really so let's say, choice. Let's say I want to purchase it as an individual. How does that work? So all you'll have to do um, when the Form 4, which is the transfer form from a – you know, FFL to an individual. Um, when that's filled out, you'll just send a copy to your chief law enforcement officer, um, you know, because they've updated the forms, thankfully, and there's a portion that's for the dealer and for the law enforcement officer, uh, that area. Um, so you just fill that out and send it in, and you're good to go. Um, but you do lose some benefits filing as an individual that you could retain if you were a trust or a corporation. Um, If you do file as a trust or corporation, you have to do that same individual process for everybody in the trust or corporation. So if you got your, you know, crazy cousin Jim who, you know, got lit up with five felonies 20 years ago and can't pass a background check, um, it's probably better to leave him off the trust, right? (laughs) Um, But otherwise, you can have, you know, However many people you uh, think won't steal the item and run away from you, you can have them in the trust, uh, and they have to follow this process. 
But if everyone goes through and everything is passed and everyone passes their background check, um, anyone in that trust can possess the item. So if your cousin wants to get up at 4 a.m. and go hog hunting outside and you'd rather stay you know, in your cozy, warm bed, if you're in a trust, you can do that. You can say, all right, you're in my trust. You can have the suppressor. Go away. Leave me alone. Um, however, if you purchase the item as an individual, you have to be there with him supervising it. Um, if he just takes and walks out there, then he's committing a felony. Um, so you got to, you know, trudge out there at 4 a.m. when you're cold and would rather be sleeping and watch this guy. So that's one of the main benefits of purchasing as a trust or a corporation as just sort of that freedom in letting other people use the item when you're not around. Okay, so we're gonna do it. So we are gonna do it as a trust. Okay, so I'm gonna get my trust, and I, I'm gonna name my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, you know, the whole family in the trust. So that means that everyone's got to come in, and everyone's got to get their fingerprints done, and everyone's got to get their picture taken, uh, so we can turn all that paperwork in. Yeah. Now that's true for the first time, and it's you know, like I said, it, it can be a hassle wrangling people and, and herding cats to get them to go get their pictures taken and fingerprints taken. But the good news is that you only have to do that once every two years. Um, so if you let's say you buy a suppressor today, go through that process. You know, everyone sent all their stuff into the ATF. Um, the next time you want to buy something. If it hasn't been more than two years since the last time you applied, the ATF will reuse the same fingerprints and photographs that were sent in previously. So it does make it a little bit easier, um, but the very first time, yeah, you got to have everything. And I know what we do. We actually have a, a kiosk in our lobby, a silencer shop kiosk. So with the kiosk, you can actually come in, do your fingerprints on the kiosk there, and there's an app that you download on your phone. And you make sure you're standing on a, you have a white background and you can take your, your passport type photo that you can use. And then that gets submitted and it goes, it stays in a system at Silencer Shop. And so whenever you do anything, you know, they use those, you know, use that information there to connect it to your item and then turn in the paperwork for you. And you pay the fee online and you can, you know, you can go to, Texas Law Shield, get your trust at Texas and U.S. Law Shield and turn in that paperwork, mail, email that in, and they'll you know, turn everything else in, and then we just have to sit back and wait for the tax stamp to come in. Right, so, um, so, so Gordon, um, all right, so that's, that's the process for getting the, the automatic, and if I have a trust, so then... And uh, we also know the process. If we don't want to do this trust, we want to do it as an individual. And then what's the third option? So the third option is to do it as a corporation. Um, and this is, you know, in, in my personal opinion, if I had to choose between a, a trust or a corporation, I would go with a trust. Um, but basically, corporation has the same benefits as in that you can have agents of the corporation who are able to possess the item when you're not around. The downside, though is that it is a corporation. It's a company. Um, so you got to pay your, you know, fees and taxes to your governmental system, you know, in, in that state. So what can happen, though, is that people are forgetful. You know, it's an unfortunate fact of life that sometimes we just forget to do things. And if you forget to pay, you know, your corporate taxes and your corporation disappears from underneath you, well, the only lawful owner of your NFA items has just ceased to exist. Ooh. And now there are no other ways for you to transfer this item legally because the person that had it before you doesn't exist anymore. 
and you're just stuck with these, you know, these items that are turning you into a criminal where you have to destroy him. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> we come back. Um, I'm going to ask you about what, what happens if you move. Um, you move from one state to another. Is there anything that we have to do with that? Also, we're going to talk about, you know, what happens if you want to add someone to the trust or what happens if you need to remove someone from the trust. Uh, so we'll talk about all those different little details also. And we're talking with Gordon Cooper. Gordon is the he's a child prodigy. Gordon is he actually attended the University of Houston at 13 years old. And Gordon is telling us about the NFA process, how to get our hands on a machine gun, how to purchase that silencer, that suppressor, how to get that AOW, any other weapon. This is Michael Cargill. And you are listening to Come and Talk It. Peace. This is Maj Toure. You're listening to Come and Talk It Radio with Michael Cargill. Welcome back to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargill. We're talking all things firearms. Now, here's Michael Cargill. Now it's time for GGN, Global Gun News. Global Gun News, sponsored by Central Texas Gunworks, the largest online gun store in Texas. In the news. Trending deaths by gunshots for years has occurred in a majority of large metropolitan areas such as New York, Los Angeles, and of course the notorious gang territories of Chicago. A substantial majority of the proportion of the gun murders in these and similar locations is committed by individuals using pistols, semi-automatic, and revolvers alike. Recently, though, for unknown reasons, there has been a striking popularity amongst gangs for the use of semi-automatic rifles. In just the past nine months, 33 shootings involved in two neighborhoods in Chicago have been committed with AR and AK-style rifles. While the number of incidents has most certainly not risen past the murder rate of pistols, there seems to be a major spike in use. Back in 2014... Rifles didn't even break the top 20 list of most seized types of guns. To contrast that, in the past three months, police have seized three rifles from gang members or suspected gang members in Daring District in Chicago. The Hispanic gangs La Raza and the Almighty Saints have been at war for years, and along with the gangster Two Sixes and Satan's Disciples seem to be the gangs that are more privy to the enhanced firepower. The question, of course, is why now? Legislatively, there's been no change that would incur such a switch, and it's not as if the lethal potential of a semi-auto was underestimated up until now. So is the beginning of a new trend? And if so, what is the cause? While Canada itself is not known to be as pro-gun or gun-friendly as its southern ally, there is a distinct gun rights population in the Great White North. This past Monday, citizens from the province of Ontario amassed outside a municipality meeting in southern Toronto. The firearms outlet Canada store had purposed the building of an indoor firing range, which would help satisfy a demand after many ranges were forced to close in 2008. The mayor at the time, David Miller, responded to a recent killing of John O'Keefe by trying to have the city block gun manufacturers and wholesalers from opening new facilities and by closing recreational shooting ranges on city property in Toronto. 
Nobody can deny that hobby directly results in people being shot and killed on the streets of our city, Miller states during the debate. But gun owners haven't stopped trying to get more ranges up and running. Some 250 people arrived at the meeting in a lobby set up for 120. On a more national level, gun ownership license, which is mandatory for the purchase of any firearm, hit a high point of 2 million late 2015 after an increasing trend from 2009. The company needs city permission to complete the project in the shopping plaza where it is proposed, but could open this year. As we've discussed in multiple earlier episodes, the trend for gun-owning minorities have begun to spike in the last year. Along with the election of President Trump, escalating tensions amongst nations, along with both the perception and reality of escalated police violence in cases across the country are driving people toward a feeling of vulnerability. Among such groups are African Americans, which in 2014 were listed as only 19% of the gun-owning population in the United States. Recently, however, the growth amongst groups such as the National African American Gun Association had grown dramatically. The NAGA has in the past year saw a more than 100% increase in its membership tally from November of 2015 and February of 2016 and currently totals in at about 18,000 members with 24 chapters. Now, Philip Smith, the president of the NAGA, explains what he thinks is a driving force behind why people are taking up arms. 24 months ago, let's say two years, fringe groups were just that fringe groups. But now those fringe groups are kind of like, it's cool to be a racist. They've taken that and we, our community sees that and it scares us. Another member of the group, Sean Campbell, explains his belief in the Second Amendment. I tend to be in favor of the Constitution. So because the Constitution says it's the right that people should have, I'm going to co-sign. Okay, so I just, but, but, but tell me about that. You own how many firearms? I haven't counted. Um, I haven't counted. I think that, you know, individuals, you know, they're guaranteed the right by the Constitution to have a firearm. So, you know, I think that they should be able to avail themselves to that right. Over in Idaho, after the Sandy Hook shooting, the nationwide reaction sparked discussions about the nature of security in our schools. While many of those discussions ended on the conclusion of more gun control, Two districts in Idaho decided on a different course of action. About four years ago, just after the killing of multiple school children and their educators, the Garden Valley School District, located about 50 miles outside of Boise, Idaho, began a discussion on the proposal of allowing guns inside their school. With only 11 deputies spread out over 2,000 miles, response times even ones in the case of a mass shooter could be as late as 45 minutes. Years after the policy was approved and allowed for trained and certified teachers to use one of the four rifles that are stored in gun safes on campus. Now, Mountain View School District, also in Idaho, have come to similar conclusions. Without the funds to pay for security, they have allowed their teacher to volunteer as security officers after obtaining a concealed carry permit, as well as some psychological and physical evaluations. The difference between the two policies is that one will allow teachers to carry a concealed handgun on them throughout the day. And then under Idaho state law, it is completely within the school district's authority to ban or allow firearms on their campuses. 
And this session is a House bill that has been introduced, which would allow the school board to introduce firearm safety courses to students as elective classes. And that is your Global Gun News Report for this week of March 2017. All right. I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't make that name. I apologize. Maybe I should have said National African-American Gun Club. I'm sorry. Gun Association. So I'll keep it that way. I won't use the abbreviation. All right. So. We're back talking with Gordon Cooper, and Gordon is an attorney with Texas and U.S. Law Shield. And now, Gordon, I got a couple questions for you. This is going to be the, you know, the, the big round here. I got a bunch of questions. So, what if I move? What if I move? So, I have a, a National Firearms Act item, and I move from Texas, and I move to South Carolina. What's the process of me taking that item with me? So, um, I would give you a couple steps. Step number one, make sure the state you're moving to allows you to bring that item with you. Um, Not every state has the same laws regarding what kind of NFA items you're allowed to possess and which ones you are. Some states allow none of them. Some states allow everything but machine guns. Some states, it can can vary vastly from state to state. So, that would be step one, is make sure where you're going allows that item, even if you comply with the, the NFA laws. So let's say you are moving to a state that allows you to bring your item along. What you need to do before you move there is send in, uh, I believe it is the 5320.23 to the ATF, which is uh, an update of address for the item. Because the ATF always wants to know, where is this item staying? Where does it live? Where is its home? And so you send that form in. They process it. They send you a letter back basically saying, okay, great. Thanks for letting us know. You can now move with it. Um Now, unfortunately, we live in an imperfect world where people mess this up all the time. So if you do it, you know, if you move and you think, oh, God, I forgot to send in that form for my suppressor, you can still send it in. You know, I would not going to tell you to lie, but it would be helpful if you used, you know, uh, future tense about your move that you made instead of past tense for the ATF purposes. But otherwise, everything should be okay. Yeah, because I had a customer that actually purchased the item and... We he, we did the Form 3 from one gun store, one FFL dealer to us, Central Texas Gunworks, and we ha- we're in possession of the item. And now he's moving. He actually is moving to South Carolina. So he's like, what do I do? I was like, well, you can wait until the tax stamp comes in because we've already done the Form 4, so you can wait for the tax stamp to come in, and then you can you know do that. Or, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't know any other option for him. That's pretty much it because, I mean, the issue is at that point you have submitted a form to change the ownership from Central Texas Gunworks to this guy. Right. And so for you to submit another form to change it to an FFL in South Carolina would be, I mean, if you really want to draw the, the eye of the ATF on you that bad, that's, right. that's the way to do it. Yeah, because yeah, you can't do that. Because once I've submitted the paperwork saying I'm transferring it from me to him, I can't turn around and say, okay, well, now I'm gonna, exactly. we're going to transfer it to another gun store because technically – I will not be in possession of that item, you know, what, if they process that paperwork in order. Correct. Okay. Okay. All right. So um, now what if I have to add or remove someone from the trust? I need to, you know, add, add a family member, remove a family member. Yeah, and it's, it's a very easy process, um, and there's kind of – I don't want to – if there's any ATF agents listening, hang up now and or you know turn off the radio. Stop listening for me because I'm going to get out some some great secrets. Um, 
it's very easy to, to add or subtract people from your trust. It's just amending your trust. It's a very easy process. You basically just write it on a piece of paper, um, make sure your lawyer blesses it and everything's fine. But the key on this process is that you don't have to update the ATF every time you update this item or your, excuse me, your list of people who are in the trust. So what that means is, theoretically, if you didn't feel like going through the hassle of, you know, getting all your friends and family members to get fingerprinted and photographed, you could just have yourself be in the trust, apply for the item, get approved, and then add everybody back on. Even though they were added on after the trust was approved, there's no requirement that they have to send their information in to the ATF, um, even though they've been added on. So, And then you could keep that going, theoretically. Every time you wanted to buy a new item, you just drop everybody off, buy the item, add them all back on. And this is all because in the ATF's rule, they never listed the requirement and specifically went out of their way not to add the requirement that anyone added into the trust has to get fingerprinted, photographed, and background checked. Mm. Now, if any ATF agents were evil and stayed on and listened to my my fantastic theory, um, that may get fixed at some point. Uh, So some people may say, you know what, my life's hard enough as it is. I'm not going to risk playing this kind of weird, dirty game that Gordon thought up. Um, But for a lot of people, it's it's a way to save on paperwork and trouble for unruly, you know, individuals in the family who just won't go get the fingerprints done. Yeah, so, you know, in trying to get rid of a loophole, there's still a loophole. Exactly. Okay. All right, so now, can I 3D print an NFA item? So, you definitely can, um, and especially with suppressors, pretty much anything that uh, reduces the report of the firearm. So even an oil filter or a water bottle taped to the front of your, your rifle or anything like that can become a suppressor. So you can definitely 3D print this stuff. You will still have to register it. Um, now, instead of using the Form 4 that we talked about earlier, that is the transfer from the dealer to the individual, you have to fill out what's called a Form 1, which is a, a maker's form, to let the ATF know you're making this item. Now, that doesn't apply to machine guns like we talked about earlier because machine guns are only those that were manufactured or registered prior to 1986. But for suppressors and things of that nature, it's perfectly fine to 3D print. Okay. <clears throat> and earlier we were talking about 5320.20? Yes. Okay, so 5320.20, not 23, right? Yeah, excuse me. It's, you read these numbers enough and they all start to run together. I know. I just someone called. Someone actually sent me a message. Uh, so thanks, Richard. Appreciate that. All right. So now, <clears throat> I would say, okay. So what what items do I need to to have marked? You know, are there some items I need to engrave, or I don't have to get them engraved? You know, how does that engraving work? Yeah. So the engraving process is always a huge nightmare for a lot of folks because you know how many of us know an engraver offhand? Yeah, it's always something you got to go and seek out and pay for. Um, unless you're the engraver, in which case you're glad that people have to go through this requirement. But essentially, if you are the maker of an item, you do have to get the trust name, the county, and the state engraved on the item somewhere and visible. Um, you know, a lot of people are, are hesitant to do that because it really messes up the aesthetic of it. Um, but even so, that's the requirement that the government puts out, so you got to go through with it. Now, which items do I have to get engraved? Do I have to get my my suppressors engraved? You do. I mean, anything you make, you got to get engraved. Anything so you, you make, okay. So if, if I you I, print your suppressor, if you 
make a short-barreled rifle, if you do any of that, you have to put your trust name, county, and state on there somewhere. All right, so if you build an SBR, you know, from scratch, you know, you do it as a strip-load receiver and you just build that from scratch, the SBR, then you're going to have to get that engraved. Correct. Okay, awesome. Now, what if I... <clears throat> What if I need to have a gunsmith work on my firearm, my NFA item? So how does that work? Do I have to do anything with the ATF, notify them or anything? Yeah, so that is a situation where I would definitely consider using a Form 3 or some sort of form to to transfer to them while they're working on it. Um, because you definitely don't want to put them in the position of having this item with no proof that they are the person to be working on it. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it happens all the time where there are defects, where you immediately have to turn around and send it back to the manufacturer. And sometimes manufacturers will try to play gotcha and say, oh, no, you know, we can't possess the item. You're the owner of it. Don't send it to us. I mean, they can kind of try and make it difficult, but you still have to follow this process. Um, because at the end of the day, they have to be able to lawfully possess it. Okay, so it's best to do a Form 3 if you're going to send it to a gunsmith and let the gunsmith do some work on it. Correct. Okay, but you don't necessarily have to. You know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that one. Um, I, I would feel very uncomfortable if I was a gunsmith right. to take the item without any kind of paperwork saying that I was allowed to have it. Right. Um, because if the ATF knocks down my door and finds this cache of suppressors lying around, uh, it's it's going to be a very long day. Okay. And then what if my NFA item gets stolen? Because uh, we just, man, just I came across uh, one of the gun stores here in Austin. Uh, and someone actually, a gun range gun store, had their NFA items, some NFA items actually in their vehicle. And, and they were stolen out of the vehicle. Uh, so what do I need to do in, in a process like that if it gets stolen? Yeah, and it happens all the time where people, you know, even non-NFA items, they all get stolen. But the the process you want to follow is step one, immediately report it to the police. Um, because what you want to do is create a timeline of when you lost possession of the item and when uh, the criminal received possession of it. Because if they go and they rob a liquor store and, you know, drop your suppressor on the ground and then gets tracked back to you, you want something on the book somewhere saying, I lost possession of it on so-and-so date. All right, hold that, um, hold that thought, so- Gordon. When we come back from the break, I'm going to have you uh, finish answering that question. We're talking with Gordon Cooper. He's an attorney with Texas and U.S. Law Shield, and we're talking about the National Firearms Act process. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talk It. Hello, this is Gerald Darty, and I'm the Precinct 3 County Commissioner here in Travis County, and you're listening to Come and Talk It. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now, here's Michael Cargill. All right, so we're back talking with Gordon Cooper, an attorney with Texas and U.S. Law Shield. And Gordon is talking to us about the National Firearms Act process and how that stuff works. How do you get your hands on a machine gun, a suppressor, a silencer, or an AOW, any other weapon? So that's what we're talking about. And he's actually doing a great job of giving us all the, you know, the ins and outs of that. So Gordon was telling us about... You know, how, well, exactly what do you need to do if your NFA item was stolen? Go ahead, Gordon. 
Yeah, so earlier um, I told you, you know, make sure you call your local law enforcement. Make sure they know so that if, you know, worse comes to worse, bad guy uses the gun in some kind of crime, there's some kind of timeline as to when you lost the gun, and that way they know the bad guy wasn't you. Um, additionally, it is a very, very good idea to call the ATF and report to them that this NFA item has been stolen. Uh, and that way, you know, if you win the ATF lottery and they want to come inspect your item, um, it's not a they show up at your door, say, where's the item? And you're like, oh, it got stolen, you know, which never sounds good. Um, they know ahead of time, so they know to be on the watch out for it as well. Um, if you're an FSL or a licensee, you have a requirement if your inventory is stolen to report it within 48 hours. Um, for individuals, though, I would definitely suggest reporting it as soon as humanly possible because you need to get that timeline created. All right. Now, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Fourth Amendment uh, as far as the NFA is concerned. So can the ATF just enter my home uh, if I own an NFA item and just you know walk in? Sure, and this is a very common question, yeah, because you you hear that they're allowed to inspect these items, and it really sets off, you know, your your kind of Fourth Amendment alarms. Ignoring my my side diatribe that the Fourth Amendment is full of holes and pretty much doesn't exist anymore, um, it's a very valid question. Are they allowed to come whenever they want and, and inspect these items? The answer ultimately is yes, they're allowed to inspect the items. But that doesn't mean they can just buzz down your door, run to the back of your house, you know, rip open the gun safe and take a look. Um, usually what will happen, they'll contact you ahead of time. They'll say, hey, I'm coming in on Thursday at 3 o'clock. Can I take a look at the, you know, short barrel shotgun you have, for instance? And you say, all right, sure. Um, and you can meet them at the door with the item, right? It's not like you got to let them traipse through the whole house. Maybe you got a really great, you know, meth lab in the corner or something you don't want them to see. Yeah, I'm not here to judge. Live your life the way you want. But you can meet them at the door. You can meet them outside. You can be polite and courteous about it and, and still have your Fourth Amendment rights or what's left of them intact. Okay. All right. Now, let's talk about AOWs real quick. So, because we use that term AOW, any other weapon. What exactly are AOWs? Sure. So there's a wide variety of guns that fall under this AOW category. Most of them, for example, can be things that are guns but don't look like guns. So an umbrella that secretly has a trigger and shoots out a 22 bullet is an AOW. Um, a knife that has a, a secret handle you pull on and a bullet shoots out is an AOW. Um, a very common one that people sometimes run afoul of are these wallet guns. It's a, a wallet-shaped cover that fits around your gun and makes your gun look like a wallet, but it's got a hole cut out in the middle that lets you shoot it like a gun. Um, that turns your item into an AOW. You've made one mm. if you put this wallet around your gun, and if you haven't registered it, well, surprise, you've committed a felony. And, and I've seen people selling those at, like, gun shows and stuff. Yeah, and it's perfectly fine to sell that strip of leather. You know, it doesn't require any kind of special license or any kind of Form 4 or anything because at the end of the day, it's just, you know, a strip of leather. But when you take that strip of leather and combine it with a gun, you have made an AOW. You've made a wallet that fires like a gun. All right, so um, I now, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, just real quick, um, a lot of people get instantly alarmed because they have these kind of pocket holsters. Um, those pocket holsters have been very carefully designed to kind of run around this rule. They have plenty of the gun showing, the front of the gun showing, the top top of the gun is showing. So if you have a pocket pistol and you have a pocket holster, um, don't, you know, think, oh, my God, you know, I've, I've got the 
that AOW thing he was talking about. No, it's it's specifically whenever you take this wallet style holster and wrap it around your gun to make it look like a wallet, uh, but it still fires. Okay, so a cane. I take a cane and I turn it into a gun. You know, won't we'll make it fire. You know, around nine mil or whatever. That's going to be an AOW another weapon. Correct. Hopefully, you registered it before you put it together. Correct. Um, but yes, that you are correct. All right, because I, I I've seen people on Facebook, you know, say, "Hey, I went to this garage sale, and I, oh man, I, I have this beautiful cane gun." And I'm like, "Ooh, that's an NFA item. Delete your post immediately." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, let's see. Um, what about? I, I saw this video once of a guy that had a drone, and he was flying this drone, and he attached a Glock to the drone. What do you think that is? <laughs> That's a bad idea. Um, I can't imagine, you know, that would be looked on favorably for a lot of folks. Um, it, you know, even ignoring potential NSA issues aside, I don't think there's any kind of official ATF rulings that address that directly. I'm sure there will be the first time that becomes an issue. But I think just from a, a carry perspective, it definitely puts you in a legal gray area to openly carry a handgun via drone, I don't think a district attorney would look kindly on that. Okay, now let's let's talk about the difference between zip guns and AOWs. Sure. So AOW, um, like I said, covers things that don't look like guns but actually are guns. Zip guns may or may not look like uh, a firearm or an explosive device or whatever, but they are illegal under Texas law. So in the olden days, under the old rule, um, theoretically, I don't know if anyone actually did this, you could register a zip gun with the ATF like an NFA item, and it would be legal under Texas law. What is a zip gun? It's a, a firearm that has been put together from pieces that were not originally firearm parts. So, for example, uh, my favorite example is a potato gun. If you get some tubing and you get yourself a lighter and some you know hairspray or whatever and you make yourself this potato gun, um, that is a zip gun under Texas law. Formally, if you were willing to spend 200 bucks on a potato gun, you could try and register it. And truth be told, I don't know of anyone that actually tried. Um, but under current Texas law, you've lost that ability altogether. You can't even register it with the NFA to make it legal anymore. It's just flat out illegal. And we actually lost that right in the last session, correct? Yeah, and it was, you know, it, I don't know if it was done on purpose or by accident, but it's it's put us in this weird lurch where these sort of zip guns are illegal. Now, one kind of silver lining, if you're a potato gun enthusiast, um, is that it only counts for explosions, right? Uh, a projectile expelled by the force of an explosion. So if you have an air-compressed potato gun, A-OK, -okay, but don't get, you know, don't get flames involved and you should be good to go. Mm. Yeah, because uh, we, we get these bills uh, that come out of the Texas legislature, and there's always uh, those uh, consequences of some of these bills. You know, they don't really look at them really well. And then we find out later on down the road, once the bill goes and, you know, it becomes law, then we say, whoa, hold on. You know, we forgot about this. What about this? What about that? You know, and it happens with a lot of different things. It happened with the, you know, Jack, exactly what you just said, you know, with the potato gun happened with that. It also happened with um, campus carry, you know, with open carry and stuff of that nature. Um, you know, people were totally shocked, you know, that, that, well, you can't open carry a handgun on a college campus on the street, sidewalks, walkways, parking lots, or garages, uh, but you can, you know, open carry that handgun with a handgun license on the street, sidewalks, walkways, parking lots, or garages of an elementary school, middle school, high school. 
And, right. and so it's just like one of those consequences that, you know, people don't they don't pay attention to these bills. And once they become law, you know, the people are totally shocked about what we end up with. And these are some things that we were talking about last weekend, too, with some some bills that have actually been filed and, and, and put out there. OK, so. All right. So not all zip. Well, how does that work? Not all AOWs are zip guns or not all zip guns are AOWs. How does that work, Gordon? Well, now they are completely different animals altogether. Um, formally, I would tell you that um, all zip guns are AOWs, but not all AOWs are zip guns. Now I will tell you neither is neither. Um, you <laughs> cannot make a, a zip gun into an AOW, and and AOWs, I mean, if you somehow manage to put them together from pieces that aren't firearm parts, if you're some kind of mechanical genius, um, don't do that in Texas because that zip gun is, is no good. Hmm. Okay. Now, so so, kind of tell us uh, one, once again. Compare the old rules, Texas rules, to the new rules now when it comes to NFA items. Sure. Um, definitely, the key points of all this, you know, other than the the loss of the ability to register zip guns theoretically with the ATF. The other huge, you know, changes are that there's no longer that individual requirement to get chief law enforcement officer signature, which is huge. Not having to have your form backed up because your chief law enforcement officer won't sign, it, you know, it was a huge impediment to a lot of folks, and now all that's required is notification. On top of that, though, same thing is required of people in a trust or corporation that are so-called responsible persons, persons that are able to possess, transfer, you know, mess with the item, so to speak. Those people also have to notify their chief law enforcement officer. They have to get fingerprinted. They have to get photographed. And the ATF is going to run a background check check on them. So those are, are the biggest changes to the process, you know, from just the past year. All right. And then once you get you finally get that tax stamp, you know, and it takes a little while, uh, like we were saying earlier, if you're purchasing that item from a different FFL dealer, maybe a totally different state somewhere else, uh, that item is going to be transferred to your local FFL dealer. They're going to use a form three for that. And then once it gets to that local dealer, you fill out the form four and you start that process. And it takes time for that. You know, it doesn't happen right away. The, the Form 3 approval takes about 30 days, uh, maybe a little longer, depending on how much paperwork they have going on there or, or how many people are on vacation. And the Form <laughs> 4, <laughs> and that's true, the Form 4 um, is going to be, there's no telling how long it's going to take for you to get your Form 4 approved right now. Because right, I think the last tax stamps I received were May of last year, uh, that they were turned in May of last year. And so we're actually getting those tax stamps back. So there's really no telling how long it's going to take because of what happened July 13 with the new rules that went into effect. A lot of people turn in uh, paperwork to get uh, their silencers, well, suppressors, to get those approved. So it kind of backed up the system a little bit. All right. So, um, man. All right. So, Gordon, let's uh, we come back from the break. I'm going to have you, you know, kind of sum things up and maybe talk about some things I didn't ask you. I want to make sure we, you know, try to, I think we answered everyone's questions. They were typing to me online, four different uh, Facebook pages there. I think we got all all those questions out. But I definitely want you to mention anything that we did not talk about. We're talking with Gordon Cooper, attorney with Texas and U.S. Law Shield. And we're talking about the National Firearms Act process. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talk It. This is State Representative Jonathan Stickland, and you are listening to Come and Talk It on Talk 1370. 
welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now, here's Michael Cargill. That's right. I know a place, and we're going to take you there, you know? We're going to make sure that you're able to get the item that you want. You want that that automatic. You want to get the machine gun. You want to uh, be able to fire your your AR-15 by using a, a silencer. Uh, you know, we're going to help you today. And, and I hope we were able to answer all your questions. But let me go back to my, my co-host here, Janai. Yeah. So Janai is like my, you know, she's my, my cougar. And so <laughs> now, Gordon, you know, are you married? Uh, there's a woman who'd be very angry if I said no. Oh, okay. All right, just check. Okay, okay, because I'm, I'm getting ready to hook you up, you know, because, like, Janai is my cougar. And so, you know, uh, I tell you, she has uh, – she's just an awesome woman. She's a, a businesswoman, and I tell you, she's just – she – she has this aura about her, just like a sense of power and just authority and just, man, you, you, you talk to Janai and, and some people are intimidated by, by that, you know, so, but she's an awesome co-host and, and she's an awesome woman. So I, well, if you thank weren't, you. And if you weren't, you know, married, I was definitely going to, you know, introduce you to her. <laughs> but I'll back down on that one. I don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> All right. So, Gordon, uh, tell me uh, a little bit, you know, tell me some things that I, I didn't ask you, you know, yeah, so one thing I did want to uh, touch back on, we talked about it a little earlier, and I wanted to circle back on um, just to make sure I didn't mess anything up. Um, when we talked about sending um, Class 3 items, or you know the, the items we've been talking about, NFA items, back for repair and repair only, um, it does not necessarily require a transfer, but it is heavily suggested by both myself and the ATF um, that individuals do fill out the Form 5, not the Form 3, but the Form 5. Um, that way, the repairer has the ability to say, oh, you know, I've I've got the item, here's my paperwork to show why, and they don't accidentally run afoul of the law. So I did just want to go and touch on that and point out, you know, it's the Form 5 and that it only applies for repair. So if you want to get some other modification done to the firearm, then that is a whole separate bag of worms than just sending it back for repair. And if you send it off for modification without filling out any paperwork, you put the recipient in a very tough spot. Mm. Um, but that is one thing I wanted to touch back on. Okay, yeah, absolutely, because we get that question sometimes, too. And I, honestly, I didn't, didn't know the answer to that question at all, to be honest with you. All right, so, um, man, so, so Gordon, so, uh, how were you when you graduated uh, uh, University of Houston? So I was 18 when I got my uh, undergrad, and then I, I wasted a good solid year working and, and doing that. And then I finally got back into law school and got out of law school when I was 22. Um, so, you know, I could have done it at 21 if I had, you know, put my nose to the grindstone nor, but I guess time makes fools of us all. No, no, I think that's awesome. You know, the fact that you, you know, you actually went to, to college at 13, I think is just great. Um, uh how did you how did you fit in? You know, was it was it hard for you adapting to the, the college life at that age? No, it was fine for me. Everyone just thought I was like a, a midget, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, everyone assumed I was the same age they were. And, you know, they'd invite me out to go study at some bar and they'd be like, well, you know, not only can I not get in, I don't have a driver's license yet. Um, so there were a lot of those kind of surprise situations. But now for the most part, everyone just assumed I was, you know, your average short college student. <laughs> Gordon, how I'm curious, how old were you when your parents realized you were gifted, so to speak? You were pretty intelligent. Um, they started homeschooling me at around 10, and then I think they just got sick of me, and so they told me to go try this college entrance exam. 
So they're like, you know what? We don't. There's nothing we can tell you. Uh, <laughs> so I can't even grade your paper. So we're just going to send you on. Wow. I think they just got tired of my smart aleck attitude, and they were like, get out of here. Go go to University of Houston. <laughs> I don't know. You don't come across as being a smart aleck. You're actually pretty laid back. You're you know pretty quiet. Maybe it's because I just don't know you that well, and we haven't had a couple drinks yet. <laughs> you get me alone sometime, you'll you'll get a couple quips out of it. <laughs> okay. We have to try that. All right. So, um, man, uh, anything else that we didn't, uh, we didn't ask you, Gordon? No, I think whenever it comes to NFA items, you know, the the key is always play safe because this is a, a very serious crime, is a felony. You know, if convicted, you lose the right to buy a gun forever. It's, it's a very awful crime to be convicted of. So you want to make sure you do everything right from the get-go. You know, the beginning is the most careful time uh, in anything, and especially so with NFA items. So if you ever have a question uh, about, oh, is this the right form or am I submitting this right, ask it. Don't make any assumptions whatsoever. Yeah, because the things that I, I see on Facebook, the things that I see on Twitter, uh, it, it really scares me sometimes in uh, the things that people tell other people. And it's like, whoa, no. Go talk to your attorney. Talk to an attorney. Uh, do not listen to someone online, you know, what their advice is or what they think you're supposed to you know, do with certain things. Definitely consult an attorney, um, you know, with a lot of those questions. Well, all of them, actually. And there, there are even a lot of gun stores that are stuck in, like, I don't know, like the 1800s. You know, they're still doing fax machines. I mean, there are some gun stores we, we have to pull teeth to get information out of sometimes uh, around the country. And it's really frustrating. You know, it's like, hey, you know, okay, yeah. just simple things like sending us a copy of their FFL. And they're like, um, well, we can only fax. Well, can you email it to me? No, just fax. Okay, we're well, just fine. Go ahead and fax it to me then. You know, it's just it's it's really hard sometimes. So. Definitely check with your attorney on all these things. You know, I, I go to my attorney at Texas and U.S. Law Shield with everything. And, you know, if something happens, you know, with my family, I have a question inside the gun store. I actually contact Texas and U.S. Law Shield and get those answers. There's also a nice book that's out there. And I want Gordon to tell us about that book because that book is the Bible to me. It has a lot of information in it. And um, what's the name of that book, Gordon? Yeah, it is Armed and Educated, and it's a book um, put together by Texas Law Shield with anything you need to know about firearms law as a Texan. And, you know, if you read it from cover to cover and retain that information, then you are you're good to go. It's, I mean, it's exhausting how much information is in there. It's a, it's a lot because uh, you can find out, you know, well, the, the common question is, can I ship a gun myself? Uh, to myself, you know, within the state of Texas, you know, that's a common question. And, you know, and, and how do I go about shipping it if I can do it? You know, this book tells you those answers. It it it, it lays all that stuff out to you. So you, you definitely want to, you know, take a look at this book. It's a really good reference. You can put tabs in it and everything and get that information. All right. Well, Gordon, I want to thank you for coming on the show today and spending your Sunday afternoon with us. Um, and definitely have a wonderful rest of your weekend. I will. Thank you all for having me. It's always a pleasure. All right, sir. In Austin, Texas, after city council basically banned Uber and Lyft from the city for not following their overreaching rules and regulations, sting operations were conducted to try and catch their employees in the act. Now, the city of Austin, of course, wasn't the only bureaucracy uh, to crack down on the innovations of Uber and other ride-sharing services, the company has had difficulties in other cities like Portland, Paris, Kenya, Boston, 
Las Vegas, and other international and national cities, making it more difficult for the company to expand its service. Uber has been responding to these difficulties in multiple ways amongst the more interesting tactics. They've used a tool called Grayball. Grayball allows Uber to pick up on law enforcement and other individuals trying to violate their terms of service by tracking past activity of the app, banking account information, social media information, and other trending data picked up from the user's phone. Now, if the application has been opened multiple times in close proximity to a government building, or if the bank details of the account holder are linked to institutions like a police credit union, the phone is, quote, grayballed. Once the phone was tagged, it was difficult, if not impossible, to get a driver to pick you up. Now, riders with these tagged phones would see either no available vehicles or would use ghost drivers in a fake version of the app. If the driver was already assigned, they would easily cancel the ride once notified of the grayballed status. Now, some code enforcement agencies starting, they started buying dozens of phones to create fake accounts that had not yet been grayballed. Now, Uber employees responded by going to local electronic stores and looking up the device numbers of the cheapest phones for sale to flag them early on. The legality of this operation is a bit spotty, but everything considered, they've been left with little choice. So, good job, Uber. And way to stick it to the man. <laughs> As always, more guns equals less crime. Go out and buy yourself a gun. You've been listening to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargill. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.